election observation has now recently become I would say the Fed, you know, the in thing. Everyone is talking about it and so on. But my worry, Peter, is that uh, it's still done relatively as, uh, you know, a ticking the box type of thing. Hello, you are listening to Leaders Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project, a broadcast that focuses on leadership and the experiences of thought leaders across African countries. My name is Peter Pinar. I'm a political science researcher here at Michigan State University in the United States. I'm also the host of this Leaders of Africa Project broadcast. In this episode, we feature our interview with South African professor Kiliaboha Mupunye, who is the inaugural Whipul Bregaliabaum Chair in Electoral Democracy in Africa at the University of South Africa. We asked Professor Mupunye about his interest in elections, election management, and administrative concerns. We also hear Professor Mupunye's views on how best and worst practices in elections spread and how his professional experience relates to efforts to impart best practices and build capacity. Is election quality increasing, declining, or staying the same for most African countries? Have election observation missions, particularly from African regional organizations, positively influenced election quality? How do election commissions contribute to election quality? We pose these questions and many others to our guest, Professor Kelia Boja Mapunye. In addition to being the inaugural Wipu Bregaliabaum Chair in Electoral Democracy in Africa, Professor Mapunye has worked for the Department of Public Service and Administration and the Electoral Commission of South Africa, the IEC. Presently, Professor Mapunye conducts research on elections, governance, and democracy in South Africa and continentally, with particular attention to election management bodies. Although this is his major focus, Professor Mapunye has written articles and contributed to media debates on topics ranging from post-independence, administrative and bureaucratic reform to gender and human rights concerns. We are very excited to have Professor Mapunye on Leaders' Voices. One thing that is highly admirable is his interest in both research and academia on the one hand and practice, the hands-on bit. Professor Mapunye joined us via Skype from Pretoria, South Africa. Welcome, Professor Mapunye, to the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you very much for inviting me, Peter, and I'm very happy to participate in this exciting you know, interview to share my experiences as well as information regarding elections, democracy, and governance in Africa, which is quite a rare opportunity. I must commend you and your university for undertaking this initiative. Well, thank you so much. I very much appreciate it. Now, let's start with a little bit of background about yourself before we get into some of the, the issues that we want to discuss. What made you interested at the beginning of your career in issues of election management and election quality? Actually, Peter, that's a very good question. I came into the election space by default, if you like, because in 2003, I was appointed senior research specialist focusing on democracy and governance at South Africa HSRC, Human Sciences Research Council. And the HSRC itself was focusing, guess what, on elections. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the country was due to have a massive election in 2009, where a new president was obviously going to be elected with a new cabinet. And the HSRC was requested then to undertake analysis of you know, electoral trends, what people want about these elections, do elections matter in any case, and what happened since South Africa's um, you know, historic 1994 election that brought Nelson Mandela to power. Mm-hmm. So initially, it was a pioneering initiative, and I got involved as among the few first um, researchers with the Human Sciences Research Council. So I then, you know, my interest in elections was, was already sharpened, 
Not that I didn't know about the elections. I knew, like any you know, political science scholar, student, academic, I knew about the elections, but the interest wasn't that intense. It became intense immediately after, you know, we were asked to undertake that project. And guess what? Eventually, I then went to uh, do analysis in the media about election trends up until that election in 2009. And then thereafter, of course, I joined the, the IEC, the Electoral Commission of South Africa, as you mentioned earlier. I see that you completed your PhD at the University of Essex in the UK, and I'm curious, how was that experience, completing your PhD, and if you can recall, what was the topic of your dissertation? <laughs> you will be surprised that the topic of my dissertation was nowhere near elections. Mm. It was the, about the South African senior civil service structures, roles and perspectives on change in selected government departments in, in 1994. So the PhD itself was focusing on what the British scholarship then called the SCS, the Senior Civil Service. Mm -hmm. And there was this trend, obviously, uh, to understand what we call the political administrative interface, the relationship between uh, senior bureaucrats who are in Congress in the American situation, but then in South Africa Parliament, as well as DGs or Directors General in the South African system, to see how they relate to the ministers, the politically appointed public representatives. So for me, it was quite an exciting PhD because I was able to look at power in practice from the administrative side, as well as from the, you know, the politician side. And uh, now taking that experience to the Human Sciences Research Council, as well as this research on democracy, elections and governance, actually was able to show me what happens behind the scenes. The very same guys that I would have interviewed about two or three years earlier, now having to go to them and you know look at what they are doing in terms of elections and how to promote democracy, seeing that this was an exciting era, historic era. Nelson Mandela has just come into power and he was previously a prisoner who was apparently doomed to die in prison. And suddenly you have this president and now he's all, you know, gung-ho, he's so excited and he's saying that South Africa can be the best country in the world. It was excitement really. So for us as researchers, this was a new mind dump that was to be excavated. And to that extent, my PhD experience was also brought in to this space now about elections. If you want to take me back to the research itself, it actually wasn't that different from what I'm doing now. It's just that right now what I'm doing is practically focusing only on things to do with ballot papers, election management bodies, as you mentioned, you know, voters and so on. But there, I was looking at the other side, once people have already voted, they now have a government in power, is this government delivering? And if it's not delivering, what should be done? Is this president and you know the whole executive accountable to the citizens? So. For me, it has actually brought in a world of practice as well as the world of research and academia together. And actually, it's a unique experience, Peter, because I have discovered that in Africa, this chair is the only one, actually, which conducts research on elections, is based at the university, but it also is able to interface with the election practitioners out there, like I'm going to Mauritius this next week, to engage practically with a, you know, a sitting election management body in Mauritius. And when I come back, I will be able to share that information with the university, maybe present a seminar or something. So it breaks the academic practitioner, you know, divide, if you like. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk more about that as we go through. And, and as you mentioned, sure. now you're focused really much on the practical elements of elections and election administration. So let's turn to that topic. 
And I want to start with uh, something that has interest me, even in my research, the issue of election observation. As we see, you know, election observation really began after the end of the Cold War in a variety of different contexts, both in Europe, but also increasingly in African countries. And I'm curious, when you think about election observation more broadly, how has it evolved, you know, in the African context over the last 20 years? Actually, for me, I would say over the last 30 years, because I'm thinking, as you were speaking, I was thinking about Ghana's, you know, founding elections, Ghana being, you know, among the first countries to obtain independence from the British, uh, British colonialism and so on. And so shortly thereafter, we had this fascination about election observation. I tend to prefer dividing the topic into two. There's election observation, then there's election monitoring. And let's start with observation first. Observation became much fascination of mostly the external, uh, if you like, observers as well as countries, trying to find out as to whether the developing world in which Africa falls was actually quite excited about democracy, how did they receive it and so on. And uh, so it became much more of an external you know, uh, initiative. But it was only then to come to uh, your question. In the past uh, you know, 20 years or so, uh, two decades ago, that the African countries themselves, including different you know, civil society organizations, election management bodies themselves, and other you know, role players uh, also catching on to this fire to say, oh, by the way, there's this thing called election observation. Can we also observe? So it started much more slowly recently in Africa because initially many of those countries tended to look at it you know, scornfully as quote-unquote big brother you know, spying on us. Whenever they have election, they say, okay, they want to check whether we know we are practicing democracy. And which democracy are we practicing is liberal democracy, the Western type. So they want to come here to see whether we are sticking to the rules. And if we are not sticking to the rules, big brother is going to wield the big stick which is aid and punish us by not giving us the money. So it, it was more like a compliance type of thing to say, okay, we have to allow these observers and be good boys and good girls during the time when the elections are, are running, because if we don't behave, they're going to punish us by you know, withdrawing the money. Uh, but it was only after the OAU, the Organization of African Unity, became the African U uh, Union that Africans themselves and if African government started thinking that, by the way, we can also okay, take ownership of this thing called election observation. And hence, they started thinking that they need to organize election observation. Ourselves, as people at universities, also started thinking we need to look at what these observers are doing. They are always saying the elections were free and fair. Can't we interrogate this thing, uh, you know, empirically and see what methods and mechanisms they, they are they're using to declare an election free and fair? In fact, why do they declare the election free and fair when immediately after they have withdrawn, there's a violence like what happened, happened in Kenya in 2007 or in Cote d'Ivoire or the Ivory Coast, uh, you know, uh, shortly thereafter? So election observation has now recently become... I would say the Fed, you know, the in thing. Everyone is talking about it and so on. But my worry, Peter, that is still done relatively as, a, you know, a ticking the box type of thing, where a group of observers are going to be assembled together. They get sent to some country. It's like a zooming in, zooming out type of thing. That's the term that I use. They come in there, you know, about two or three weeks before election. Sometimes some of them even less than seven days before an election, a major election, I should say. They come in there. They just, you know, tick the boxes. They go to the major capitals. They are very eager to write their reports. Uh, because they are getting this per diem, this, uh, you know, daily subsistence allowance. They are looking for that money. And then, of course, they leave. And so I tend to think that it's not very rigorous. It's quite questionable. And some of us, when I, I observed the elections in Zimbabwe in 2013, I was one of those observers who said the election was relatively free, but in my view, it wasn't fair. 
Whereas other observers, you know, had already declared the election free and fair and they had already left. And I met a journalist and I told him that, look, you know, I think that we as observers have to interrogate our methods and we need to be much more rigorous. We need to look at the situation in the pre-election period, during the election, as well as post-election, two or three months after the election. Because mm -hmm. they Absolutely. just focus on, on the election day. Yeah, basically that's that, yeah. And so one of the related questions to this, and I think you've alluded to this in your answer, is what are the aims of election observation, both in your mind or what should they be, the aims of election observation and election monitoring, which is related, as you mentioned, that distinction? And how does what you think that election observation process should look like differ from how it's being used now? Is it supposed to be informational? Is it supposed to provide the basis for intervention or specific forms of election assistance? What is that aim in your view and how may that differ from other regional organizations or how other election observers are practicing it? Let me uh, latch on to your last comments. Actually, for me, it's supposed to be informational, whereby it provides, you know, comprehensive information. What kind of electoral system is being used by this country? Who are the election, you know, functioners, the senior, the main role players of, of that election? What has happened previously, the past decades and so, and how, you know, give us a trend analysis of how the elections have been run. Uh, have they been beneficial to the citizens? You know, has there been any violence? And if so, how was it tackled? And what remedial steps have been taken to deal with, you know, or to avoid? you know, a recurrence of uh, that violence. And basically, is democracy, you know, broadly speaking, using the power of the ballot, benefiting this country? And do we have, uh, you know, consolidation of democracy in terms of, uh, you know, from the citizens' viewpoint, not from the bureaucrats as well, from government? Because mm -hmm. government will tell you, yes, we are now more democratic than before, including the bureaucrats. But uh, when you speak to the citizens, it's the other way around. So for me, it's not just supposed to be informational. It's also supposed to uh, now, you know, interrogate the uh, role of the key role players. Is the electoral body, whichever term you use, some use election authorities and so on, is it independent from, you know, the state as it were? Is it accountable, you know, to the citizens? How independent is it? Is it uh, autonomous from the state? And is it able to uh, impartially and independently run the election such that we have a legitimate outcome which reflects the wishes of the majority of the electorate? Mm -hmm. So for me, it's informational, but also interrogating the deep-seated you know, often avoided or often neglected, you know, big questions. Like if you look at Zimbabwe, for instance, in 2013, to go back to the Zimbabwean uh, case, there wasn't, you know, in 2002, what some observers have called massive rigging, including, you know, violence. But then we had an election in 2013 where, you know, none of those, uh, you know, issues happened. We had an election which produced Mugabe again, and some, you know, suspected that he had stolen an election, but they didn't know how. Some said, no, but he must have used intimidation and the armed forces. And we discovered that, in fact, to some extent, this is what happened about uh, six months before an election. In our six months before, the key election management bodies started descending on Harare, which is the capital, to come and observe the election. And when they came in, they found that the stage had already been managed. So we would like that kind of approach, which is much more intense, which is wall to wall, in between a major election, long after an election has happened, and long before an election is to take place, they need to give uh, you know that kind of analysis. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that kind of analysis, uh, Peter, can only come from the likes of uh, you know researchers like you and I, you know scholars, academics, and so on. Because the EMBs, the election management bodies, normally say no, we can't provide that. It's too intense, and it will take too much of our time. So yeah, those are the things. Yeah, and I wanted to talk so, about so, that so, a bit. So, yeah, I, 
I mean, yeah. when we look at election observation missions, obviously they're not all the same. And I think you've been alluding to this. You talked about yeah. the genesis of the African regional organizations and how they gotten involved. We have, yeah. you know, we have both ad hoc and standing domestic election observation missions, such as those in mm -hmm. Southern Africa, the election support networks in the yeah. SADA countries. We have regional yeah. observation missions such as ECOWAS, SADC, obviously, and the African Union mm -hmm. has been very much involved in longer term observation, which you talked yeah. about as being important mm -hmm. throughout that election cycle, or at least expanding it a bit. And then yeah. we have international and NGO missions such as the EU, yeah. the Carter Center, and then the Johannesburg based uh, organization, the Electoral Institute yeah. for Sustainable mm -hmm. Democracy in Africa, ISA. How do these yeah. arrangements work? Do they work well together? Do they cooperate? Do they share information? And relatedly, do they have certain strengths and weaknesses that perhaps could be leveraged amongst them if they were to cooperate under some sort of framework? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you have mentioned all of those, uh, you know, um, election I would say role players, because some of them are observers, some of them, like the ASA, the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa, the specialized research body come NGO, you know, which promotes democracy and elections in Africa. One of the few that's promoting, you know, elections in that regard. And of course, you've mentioned the light of AU, the likes of IGAD, ECOWAS, SADC. We've got, in SADC, we've got SADC ECF, the Electoral Commission's Forum. They also normally, you know, combine the 15 countries in SADC. They also, you know, establish their own missions. How do they collaborate? Sometimes I think they are, they don't collaborate. That is a disjointed kind of thing. They go in like a pack of wolves, if one can put it that way. And each one, you know, ready to get, you know, a chunk of the bite for its own self and, you know, couldn't care a hoot what the others are thinking. But I must say that this with a caution and proviso, because I was in Uganda last year, was 20, 2016. Yes, I was in Uganda last year, February. Yeah, when we observed that cont another controversial election, this time around, I was surprised. You mentioned the Commonwealth, you mentioned the EU. Uh, we met in one room, Peter, and they were collaborating. They were saying, we need to share information. So it looks like somebody has already you know, mentioned to them that, look, you could harness your operations by collaborating. And even when we were in the field, I met some from the um, European Union. It was in the north of Uganda. And they said, look, where have you been? You know, is there any violence happening? We can also share information. So to that extent, they are able to deal with it. But you asked about the weaknesses. The weakness, obviously, is this one that is still not systematic, the, you know, um, operation and their observation. The other thing is that there's normally a disjuncture between the election observers and election monitors. The election monitors, like in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe told the observers in 2013 that they are not going to allow any monitors because monitors are seen as those guys who can come into a voting station or polling station and annul an election and question certain things and stop you know uh, in the process whereas the observers are just quietly coming in they write whatever they see and quietly leave the voting station and they are not going to you know question the, the process so to that extent the whole process of observation and monitoring sometimes is not coordinated as, as well some countries as well as some uh, observer missions will say we are not sending sending any observers, we're only sending monitors. Meaning that their activities get either rejected by the host country or they are even barred from the host country like it happened in Zimbabwe. And some of them are seen, you know, with suspicion that they are coming to spy on the country and all those things. Apart from that, Peter, the main stumbling block, the main limitation, the weakness is the money. Where's the money going to come from? The third limitation or weakness is that even if they go in there, sometimes some of these observers, like I mentioned, I call it electoral tourism. They go into this country because, let's say I was coming to the, your elections in the U.S. last year, which brought Trump to power. 
uh, you find that I'm coming in there, actually not to observe elections, but to go to the Big Apple and enjoy, you know, the sunshine, maybe in Florida or something. So it means that some people use the election observation just an ex as an excuse to go into tourism. Some of them come here to Johannesburg and they say, wow, you've got such a lo lovely, wonderful country. And you can see that this guy or this lady is not really into election observation. She is uh, or he is focused on, you know, or tourism, you see? So that's the limitation for me. There are others that I could rattle off, but I think for me, those are the main ones. And one of the things you talked about was the methodology and enhancing that methodology of election observation. And one of the approaches that some have taken, particularly domestic election observation missions, have been this parallel vote tabulation method to build confidence in the results and also provide a bit more transparency. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. Have PVTs contributed positively to broader election observation missions and the confidence in elections in your view? I believe exactly that the, where they've been used, like in Uganda, this has worked. Unfortunately, Peter, you have to deal with the legislation and the procedural aspects. Some countries would not have legislation that specifically bars you know, such practices, but the procedures might not allow. Or some countries will say, we don't allow, you know, parallel tabulation. So in that case, you are only limited to what's available. But where they've been used in some other countries in Africa, like Malawi, and I think Zimbabwe to some extent, intensively, I would say that, you know, it has worked. In fact, it's for me, it's one of the mechanisms that can be used to enhance election, you know, uh, the role of elections in democracy. The other one is this issue of auditing the results. Unfortunately, it's only recently, our was invited to a SADC ECF, Electoral Commission's Forum of the Southern African Development Community meeting last year, where they were now warming up to the idea. The idea has been used in Latin America and I think in some other countries, uh, you know, uh, in Asia and so on, yeah. where you can audit the results. But SADC was saying, but who's going to be auditing? And are we going to be punished after, you know, adverse audits, you know, come to the fore. So they are still not, they are still very cautious and suspicious about the whole process. But we, uh, you know, saying to them, this can actually enhance the legitimacy of your operations at the voting station level. Hmm. Very interesting. And one question to sort of wrap up this discussion about election observation, and you've talked a little bit about this, is what do you think are some of the successful cases of election observation, if we can think of that? And it, I mean, it doesn't have to be complete successes, but what have been generally successful election observation missions? And then what are some elections, recent elections that you think were failures where election observation really failed to carry out the mandate they should have in those cases? Okay, I think let me start with a positive uh, situation. The situations that I'll, I'll highlight as, you know, fairly positive in terms of the role of election observation. Countries such as South Africa, such countries such as Botswana, I'll say the majority of, of you know, Saudi countries, uh, you know, say for one or two, um, uh, you know, I'll exclude the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, from that mix, have had, you know, a fairly successful procedure as well as um, election observation missions, whereby elections observers come in, they go to the hinterland, to the villages, the remote villages, even in Lesotho. I mean, I was in Lesotho in 2015 and met some of these people from the EU and, the, you know, from some of these other missions right in the mountains of Lesotho, you know? Mm -hmm. And so to that extent, I tend to think that, uh, you know, that's a success because they are now not just focusing in the capitals, you see? They are not focusing in the New Yorks of this world, the Johannesburg of this world, the Hararis, the uh, Dar es Salaams of this world, but they are actually going into the hinterland. So that's a success factor. The other one is when I look at, you mentioned earlier the, uh, you know, election support networks, They're like the Zimbabwe support, election support network, uh, Malawi election yes. support network. 
Zambia. They, they, yeah, th those election support networks, Peter, for me, have brought the citizen into the mix. Remember previously, we used to have these diplomats, these, uh, you know, senior election executives, the chairpersons and so on of the EMBs. Now, suddenly, this, um, you know, election observation process has now cascaded to ordinary citizens via the civil society organizations like the Zessens, Zimbabwe Election Support Network, Malawi Election Support Network. And you know what they, have, they do? They actually go out of the way to go and make sure that they have a full presence throughout the election, you know, period. And they don't just do the zooming in, zooming out thing that I mentioned earlier. They actually stay there and they give succinct as well as comprehensive reports. So to that extent, when I looked at the, you know, their role, for instance, last year in Uganda, I met so many of them in different uh, you know, parts of the country, Peter. And I was quite impressed that, oh, okay, so this actually, maybe what we need to do, we need to have more citizens, uh, you know, election observers in there. So those are the successes. The failures, unfortunately, you have an election in Kenya, all these election observers come in there, like I told you, they leave, some of them declare the election, you know, free and fair, or some say, you know, we reserve our judgment. Shortly thereafter, there's a violence, people are dead. So for me, they, that election, uh, you know, observation, obviously it's, it's a failure. The one that happened also in uh, countries like, you know, the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, it's a failure as well, because you have election observers going in there, and of course they say, delay the election, they're free and fair, or they reserve their comments, but then you have violence. In South Africa last year, in the local government elections, we had, you know, some you know, sprinkling aspects of violence, isolated, you know, pockets of violence in KwaZulu-Natal province, that's the Devon area. Some people were killed, and when the, some of these observers report, they don't even mention the violence. So for me, it's also a failure of, uh, you know, the, the mission, not to be, you know, to scrutinize each and every, you know, election process before finally declaring. These are some of the few. There are those, of course, also 2007, we had another election, no, 2011 in the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, yes. which resulted in violence. Yeah, so th and that the kind of situation- was very critical of those elections, it, for sure. Yeah, Ethiopia as well. Was it 2015, Ethiopia? 2015, yeah, that's well, correct. Yeah, but they did. We have to give a proviso for that election because the Ethiopians refused accreditation to some of the election observer missions international. But those we who went in, they just went in there and sheepishly left. They didn't even, you know, mention some of the um, anomalies. So for me, it's a failure of an election, you know, observer mission, not to mention the glaring, you know, weaknesses and limitations of, you know, some of these the limitations, you know, in, in their processes. Related to election observation, I want to talk just briefly about election assistance and election support. I'm aware that you're involved with this management of democratic elections in Africa, the media program at UNISA. And I'm yep. curious, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the program and how does this program really help fill in some of the gaps about election management capacity, which we'll talk about a, a bit later in the interview. Okay. Peter, this is a very important, unique, you know, experience that we have had as UNISA. The program just started, uh, you know, around 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a brainchild of three institutions. They are here at UNISA. The Whipple Brigalia BAM Chair, which I had, as well as the UNISA Institute for African Renaissance Studies, as well as the UNISA Institute for Demo Dispute Resolution in Africa, IDRA. They put together this program. It's basically a program to capacitate election officials across the continent. We are very thankful for the support of USAID because USAID are the ones who, when UNISA was looking for money, came to the party and said, we can give you funding for this. And what the program does is that we target 
two election officials from one country, from each country. So, so far we have had, I would say, about less than 50 election officials, and I'm talking about lowest level, not, not the executives, because there's a separate one for the executives. We have trained about 20 to 30 executives from the same program. But uh, talking about the junior officials, we've had about less than 50, about 50 uh, officials. We've got a new intake next month in June, where we'll be having about uh, 30 to 40 other functionaries coming to Pretoria to be trained. Basically, they use a zebra system. This is the man-woman, man-woman you know, approach, whereby we say to the election body, send us two people. One must be a man, another one must be a woman. We are bringing them to Pretoria for about three weeks. We train them. After training them, we will then follow up that in about uh, four to six months, going back to the station, to the country of these officials, to go and monitor them you know, uh, and evaluate their application of the skills that they would have learned in the program. It works almost along the same lines like the bridge program. I don't know whether you've heard about the bridge program of IDEA, International yeah. Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. Yes, mm-hmm. it's capacitated. Yeah, we, we take them through what we call the electoral cycle, you know, civic education, party, you know, funding, the issue around the role of the election, you know, commission itself, the independence and, the, you know, autonomy thereof, looking at the issue of uh, party political activities, looking at uh, voter education, voter registration, and, and the whole, you know, gamut of issues around the election, you know, the running of elections. So to that extent, we have received massive positive feedback from across the continent. Last year, I was in the Gambia assessing just before that election. Wow. That, that, that election, yes, that brought Yaya Jame down. I, incidentally, the commissioner who, who I met with, he was quite happy that the election, uh, you know, went very well and he was happy that, uh, you know, the head of state was going to step down because he lost, they lost the election. But guess what? He refused to step down. And then, of mm-hmm. course, That's the rest right. is... Yeah, but when I was there, they were very um, appreciative of the, the USAID assistance as well as UNISA's uh, you know, role in capacitating their officials because there they use marbles. They That's don't right. use ballot papers. Yeah, they mm-hmm. use a UNISA system, but, but it's also helping to capacitate them. So to answer your question, the course has so far been very, very useful. We haven't covered all the 55 countries in Africa. We still have to cover uh, you know, some more, but so far it's a very, very good, positive start you know, in the program. And it is helping them to bring the turnaround, to uh, you know, deal with the challenges that we have faced, where you had you know, previously biased election officials, some of them you know, uh, being prepared to collude in the uh, rigging of elections and so on. So whenever we take them, we have seen that those that we have trained, they are quite positive. They want to run elections you know, fairly, impartially, and independently, and maybe this is the success of the program. Yeah, and it does impart best practices across election commissions. It sounds Absolutely. like by, by doing this approach and having such Absolutely. a great reach. And I'm yep. curious, what are some of the good election practices that you think are diffusing, thinking broadly outside of the program, but also your experience in managing and being involved in this program? What are some of the best practices that are spreading across African elections today? The very first one, which is very important, an EMB or election management body must have a voter's role that can be shown to the parties and shown to the citizens well before the election is held to say this is the voters or voters register some countries use that term if you don't have voters register like it happened in zimbabwe 2013 observers come in there there's no voters role 
Now, that is the stuff of cloak and dagger, and that's the stuff for chicanery because anything can happen. Mm-hmm. You, you, you cannot have an election that you know, is legitimate or that pre- produces a legitimate outcome. So for me, the most important one is having this election you know, register that is available, which can vet you know, the people to vote, prospective voters to say, these are the people who are able to vote. Even when there are um, objections or anything, you are able to go to the voters' role and say, listen, Mr. So-and-so or this voter was registered. Mm-hmm. The second issue, yeah, the second issue is the fact that uh, EMBs, election management bodies, when we train them, we are increasingly mentioning this issue of having this safe, healthy distance from the state and the government in power. That election management bodies are there purely to run elections freely, impartially, and fairly. They shouldn't be, you know, slanted to one side or to be worried about the government in power and so on. Unfortunately, Peter, with the African situation, we have the situation of the politics of the belly. One scholar calls it that. I think it was Jean-Francois Bayard, politics mm-hmm. of the belly, whereby almost every official, whether it's in elections, whether in, in some other, you know, kind of sector of the state, they are constantly worried about what am I going to be eating tomorrow? And they are, the patronage network tends to stretch across including the EMBs. And we keep telling them that, listen, when you are running elections, you cannot be part and parcel of the patronage network. You have to make sure that the election that you are running is going to be free, fair, impartial, and is going to reflect the wishes of the electorate that has voted. And those electorate must be legitimate. There must not be ghost, uh, you know, voters. They must be, you know, available in the election register. The third issue is voter education. We have discovered and I've discovered throughout uh, you know, my experiences across the continent that these guys are not providing what I call wall-to-wall voter education or civic education. Mm-hmm. The citizens must be informed about the electoral you know, uh, type of election that is going to be held. The yes. electoral system, is it first past the post? Is it a uh, you know, unitary system? Is right. it uh, you know, proportional representation? What kind? And in fact, mm-hmm. w- what are the implications of this electoral system that they have for the government that they are going to be choosing? And it is, this can only be done with this kind of intense, comprehensive, wall-to-wall civic education. Unfortunately, if you ask me across the continent, none of this, these EMBs are doing that, and we are constantly engaging them. Increasingly, they tell us about the money. We don't have the money, but we keep telling them, but you are getting votes from the the national parliament, the legislation. You need to make sure that you put voter education or civic education as one of the top priorities that you are going to be doing in between major elections. Those are the key issues that I think, uh, you know, uh, for for me are the success factors. The weaknesses, obviously, are so many, like I've mentioned. And of course, we'll get to that. One question I had about these best practices is, in what settings do these best practices spread in the most productive way? You know, are there certain professional meetings or professional programs that are being conducted or support from election commission forums across the continent? Where is the most success coming from in terms of diffusing best practices and having them actually implemented within countries? The most success, in my view, is coming from, in our view, from civil society organizations, courses such as the MDEA, the Management of Democratic Elections in Africa. Because when I looked through the continent, I didn't find any any similar course. Mm-hmm. The other where, you know, part of success is coming from the EMBs themselves, taking an initiative, going to USAID, going to International IDEA, going to IFES in the UAE in Washington and say, listen, we need assistance. We are going to be running an election. We don't have sufficient money. Can you send in either advisors who are going to uh, come in and assist us? Also going to uh, researchers from the different universities. Incidentally, courses such as, uh, you know, Professor Pippa Norris, they are running this uh, program. I think it's a 10-year program on election integrity. The election I, I, 
integrity project. That's correct. Yeah, I think this is one of the initiatives that can assist the continent to be able to bring the best practices. So far, it hasn't spread much, maybe in the African continent, but they did contact me two years ago in Johannesburg. I'm one of the people that, uh, you know, uh, was interviewed, just like you are interviewing me now, to say what kind of innovations can be done. But apart from that, I think uh, you, you also have the donor, you know, community, your EU, your, you know, OECD, your African Union itself, and, and the other, you know, role players. Unfortunately, the suspects tend to come from different you know role players the governments i tend to think that they are not putting enough money you know where their mouths are because they want to have elections run very well but when the emb the election body goes to them and say give us funding there's no normally you know they tend you know uh, they, they call feet you know and, and i think they also governments in africa need to do that they seem to expect somebody from elsewhere to fund their elections, which is quite an anomaly because soon thereafter they complain that, oh, we have, uh, you know, too much external interference in our, you know, election space. To what extent are these elections free and fair? And yet they are the ones who are not giving, you know, the money where their mouths are. Mm -hmm. That's true. And funding of elections has been an issue, including the issue in the DRC and, and in other countries as well. And talked about how that's part of the impetus why election commissions do seek help or assistance is for financial support on various, for various reasons. Now I'm curious, so we've talked about best practices a bit. We also have the worst practices and they can also diffuse as you know. For example, the suspension of the internet before and during an election, a limiting of campaign activities, uh, the arrest of opposition leaders after elections. We see this diffusing and I'm curious in your view, how much are these spread of worst practices an issue right now? And are there any particular worst practices that you are more or, or less concerned about? Let me start with the last question. For me, the worst practices are the ones that you have mentioned. I was in one of those people who, in, who were caught up in Uganda. We couldn't send any emails. No WhatsApp, no Skype, nothing. The ordinary citizens also couldn't even use their cell phone, you know, mechanism to send money from one town to the other, which I that this is how they send money to their relatives, simply because there's an election and the government is, you know, this Ugandan corporation has decided to close shop, you know, shut down everything. So the shutting down of the internet, as well as, you know, a shutting down of communication, for me, is one of the biggest threats during an election. The other one is the violence, whereby it's violence from the state, but it can also be violent from vigilantes, countries such as the DRC, you know, in Kenya, it happened. I'm not so sure about the uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, but I know in the case of Zimbabwe, you know, you had this so-called people's militias, you know, who are also, you know, roaming the countryside, as well as uh, the armed forces, you know, being used to intimidate not only the citizens, but even the election functionaries, telling them that, listen, if this election of yours is not going to produce, you know, the results that we are expecting, you are going to be in trouble, you know? So that violence can also be one of the biggest thing. The other issue is EMBs or election management bodies as well as election officials that are biased blatantly mm -hmm. or that's, that, you know, you can really see that these ones are either, you know, working for the state. They don't see themselves as impartial, you know, free, fair. They see themselves as, you know, state functionaries, functionaries in the first place before they can see themselves as operating in this space, which requires them to be impartial. So that is also a big problem. The other problem is the issue of electronic voting or the EVMs, electronic voting machines. Nowadays, a number of uh, election management bodies have indicated that they are they would like to, uh, you know, uh, use EVMs. Well, some of them are still reluctant to use them, but for those that I, you know, have expressed a willingness to do so, you wonder how 
whether they have really you know thought through about this issue the safety of this thing we all know what happened in florida you know how do they forestall issues such as that florida election which where this machine is busy chaining you know votes in favor of one candidate and not the other apart from that also the situation that happened in kenya where the evms failed i'm worried that they are still going the, the same route Apparently, this next election, they are also going to be using, you know, electronic voting. Botswana, as I'm talking to you right now, the EMB is going across the country, trying to sell the idea of using electronic voting machines in the next election to citizens. And naturally, some of the citizens are seemingly very reluctant to use a mild way term, you know. And so the issue is, these EVMs, who is going to be, you know, bringing the technology? How safe is it going to be? Have they you know, looked at the, the advantages and disadvantages of this? How do they workshop, you know, the very, you know, uh, weakness or limitations of these machines to the citizens long before any election? So for me, those are the limitations. Those worst practices, those concerning practices. Yeah, so for me, those are the concerning practices, mm -hmm. in, including violence from parties. Some political parties yeah. will create what they what you call no-go areas. It happened in South Africa here, in, in some parts of the country where some political parties say, no, we are not going to allow party X to come in here. We're not going to allow their candidates to come in here. In fact, we are going to attack them, you know? So those practices are quite objectionable in my view and should be condemned. But unfortunately, it's supposed to be a matter of more, much more than condemnation by the government of that country, by the election management body of that country, by the citizens of that country, but also the African Union. But we've got the African Charter on Democracy, Elections and Governance. That's true. That charter, in my view, is not being specifically and skillfully implemented and enforced. There are some countries which have signed the charter, but they have not ratified it. Some have ratified the charter, but they are not implementing it to the full. Some of them have ratified and signed it, but they're just quiet about its you know, provisions. So for me, those uh, weaknesses, the limitations, those best practices, I think would be addressed by you know the charter, as well as the African Union principles on democracy and governance, as well as the SADC principles in the case of the region where I am. There are also ECOWAS principles. Those best practices, you know, unfortunately undermine the consolidation of of a democracy via, you know, the ballot and elections in Africa. And this concludes part one of our interview with Professor Kelly Aboha Mapunye. Do you have thoughts on whether election quality in African countries is increasing, decreasing, or staying the same? We want to hear from you. Email us your questions and comments at yourvoiceatleadersofafrica.org. And that's it for me, Peter Pinar, on this episode of Leaders' Voices from the Leaders of Africa Project. Thank you for listening. Until next time.